Okay, so we're uh, in Luke's gospel, going through it. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Story I think we're all familiar with. Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. I'm actually going to start with just the last clause from chapter 3. The son of Adam, the son of God, Jesus, <laughs> full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted or tested by the Satan. He ate nothing during those days. I find this to be interesting. At the end of them, <laughs> he became hungry. <laughs> wow. Must have been almost supernatural then. Honestly, this was supernatural. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him all in an instant the kingdoms of, the, of this world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority, all their splendor, because it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, if you bow to me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written. Worship the Lord your God and worship him only. And the Satan led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning his Messiah to guard him. And they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. By the way, all of Jesus' um, quotes are from the text, obviously. They're all taken from Deuteronomy 6 and 8. Just want to throw that out there. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, but not for good until another opportune time. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, I'll tell you what we so often do with a story like this is we look at it from the life application level. So we look at this and see that Jesus is tempted, and then we see how he resists temptation, and Then we ask, okay, what are the moral prescriptions for me so that I can be like Jesus and resist temptation too? And while we need to get to this place and talk about that because that's important, uh, we also, if we only do that, we're missing the, the cosmic thing that is going on. I mean, this is the cosmic battle that has been raging since the beginning, since creation. And I want us to see this, this, this cosmic thing and, and the cosmic implications that are here. So to help us see that a little bit, let me frame it this way. Don't know if you know this, but in the biblical story, whenever God is going to act in a mighty way, there is a consistent paradigm. The paradigm consists of these five parts. 
And it's in, the, in this order. So I have it uh, on PowerPoint here. First, there's the watery chaos, followed by the hovering spirit, following by God speaking, followed by the kingdom of heaven breaking in, bringing shalom to chaos, and then followed by temptation. So at creation, you have chaos, the tohu vebohu, God's spirit hovers over the chaos. Then God speaks. He says, let there be. Then out of the chaos comes the kingdom of heaven, bringing order and beauty and meaning. And then there's temptation. Noah, you have the watery chaos of the flood. And that dove going out, the dove in the Bible symbolizes the Holy Spirit. It it hovers over the waters. The flood recedes. God speaks makes a promise, establishes the covenant with Noah. God's kingdom is established. Then temptation. Noah gets drunk. Egypt. You have the watery chaos, not just of Pharaoh. The watery chaos represented by the Dead Sea. You have that east wind that that parts the waters. The east wind in the Bible is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The people pass through the waters. They're born again. God then speaks, gives them his word to Ra. And a new covenant, a new kingdom is established. And then temptation, the golden calf. Entering the promised land. When they pass through the waters again, the Jordan, the Jordan represents the chaos. The hovering spirit this time is the ark that goes before them. That's why the ark must go first. God speaks to them. And they get in promised land. God's kingdom is once again established. And then temptation. Remember the sin of Achan. Now we're in Luke's gospel. In Jesus' baptism, we need to understand it in light of this. The waters are more than just a river. The waters of the Jordan represent the watery chaos. And that spirit comes down and it hovers over Christ. It fills him. And God speaks. This is my, my son, my king, in whom I love. And the kingdom, oh, feel the excitement. It's about to break out. And the lame are going to walk and the blind are going to see. And the poor are going to have the gospel preached to them. And the orphan is going to be brought back into the family of God. And now temptation. I don't know what this does to you. But when I see it in this light, this biblical light, Jesus' baptism is the God of the universe saying to the world, I see your chaos. I want to stand with you in your chaos. I want to enter your chaos. I want to do something about your chaos. And now in chapter 4 comes the temptation. And we need to see that something on par with creation is, is going on because we're right back now in the Garden of Eden. In fact, that last verse of chapter 3 that I read, the son of Adam, the son of God, 
I mean, here in Christ, we have the second Adam. And here he is, not a garden this time. The, the garden has become a complete wasteland, a wilderness. And here comes the snake slithering in to tempt. And what I want us to see is that up until this point, the snake has won. Adam was tempted and failed. Noah was tempted and failed. Israel was tempted and failed. Now comes the Christ. We have to feel the drama. That something on par with creation, new creation, is taking place. And the stakes in our text are high. So look at verse 2. It says, where for 40 days Jesus was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So these 40 days in the desert, it really sets the context of the showdown. 40 days in the desert is not necessarily a prescription for us. Hear that. It's a description of what's going on. What does 40 in desert remind us of? Israel. Israel is tested for 40, 40 years where? In the desert. So Jesus being tested 40 days in the desert is his way of saying, I'm stepping now into Israel's shoes. I am true Israel. In fact, I love Satan's opening tack on Jesus. What's the first words he says to him? Look at your text. What does he say? If you are God's son. Adam's called God's son. God calls Israel my firstborn son. Here comes Jesus as new Israel, God's firstborn son. And so Satan's attack is is really if you are God's son, if you are really true Israel. In fact, each of the three tests um, that are going to be thrown at Jesus correspond exactly with the three tests that that God's people were tested with in the wilderness. But I don't have time for that this morning. You're just going to have to study that on your own. But what we need to see this morning is that Jesus is God standing in Israel's shoes. In Adam's shoes. In our shoes. To attempt to do what Adam couldn't do. What Israel couldn't do. What we can't do. To live the life we're all supposed to live. And I can sum up that word, the life we're all supposed to live, in one word. What is it? Shema. Shema is real. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta Adonai Elecha, V'chol Levavka, U'v'chol Nashika, U'v'chol Me'adecha. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your might. That's what we're called to do. That's the life we're called to live. Shema is the heart of the whole thing. What it means for us to obey God at the heart of obedience is Shema. It is to love God with everything we have. 
Even Jesus said that this, this, this whole thing is summed up in Shema. So Satan comes to Jesus and says, turn these stones into bread. No, Satan. It is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I will love God with my whole heart. Satan comes again, bow down and worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. No, Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord and him alone. I will love the Lord my God with all my might. And finally, Satan has Jesus standing on the edge of the temple platform, and he says, jump. And now Satan does what Jesus does. He quotes the book. He says, jump, because it is written, the Lord will command his angels to protect his Messiah. And Jesus says, no, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I will love him with my life, my soul. And see, what I want us to see is that Satan is not just trying to get Jesus to slip up and break a rule. He's going for the jugular. He's trying to get Jesus to compromise in living Shema. He's trying to get Jesus to bow to his kingdom so that God's kingdom never breaks out. And our world remains in chaos. You see how crafty he is? Because this is what he's doing with us. That's why we can look at a text like this and and, and we can learn Satan's strategy. Because I'm not even going to go into the fact that Satan is real. That there is a real Satan and a real demonic force of darkness. Not even going to give an apology for that because the Bible just speaks about it. But his strategy is, is, is not necessarily to tempt us with bad things. Because I think most of us know that bad things are bad. I mean, what's wrong with bread? Bread is a basic need. It's food. We need food. Food is a good thing. But this is what Satan does. He takes a good thing like food because he knows how vulnerable we are to take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing where food becomes more than just food, where we have to have food and we have to have certain kinds of food to be happy, which then can lead to an obsession with food. And see, Satan does this all the time. He, he, he takes good things, things like our kids or a sport or a reputation or a job or a spouse or a relationship, a friendship, a diet exercise, ministry. I mean, are these things bad in and of themselves? See, Satan knows how vulnerable the human heart is to take a good thing like these things and how our heart just so quickly turns a good thing into an ultimate thing. I mean, just think about the the, the whole pursuit of, of, of even just being a good person or or being spiritual. I mean, this, this certainly, you could say, is a good thing. But how subtly Satan can just 
twist that and, and, and make even something like that become an ultimate thing. And, and, and when, it, when it does, what Satan has now is a really good Pharisee. See, living Shema means that God is supreme in my life. It means that he is the supreme love of my life. And see, we know that that any good thing that becomes more important to God, what does the Bible call that? An idol. I'm going to push this further. Any good thing that becomes more important than God is going to become a demonic force in our life. In the Bible, Deuteronomy 32, 17, Psalm 106, 36 through 37, it connects idolatry with with demons. Because there's a power behind this. Power. Sport isn't just sport. There's a power behind sport. Our jobs aren't just jobs. There's there's a spiritual power behind that. I don't care anything that becomes more important than God, especially good things, even good things like ministry for me, like preaching sermons for my children. When it becomes an ultimate thing, it will, in some way, lead to ruin. And Satan knows this. And see, everything that we do, we are either unleashing the kingdom of heaven, or we're giving back a piece of Satan's kingdom. Now, Satan's other strategy is is not just to tempt us to do wrong, But I'll tell you what Satan's going to go after almost all the time. It's not just for us to act wrongly. It's going to attack our identity. When you think about Jesus right now, I mean, uh, Dan Mike, bless God for that guy and what he uh, laid out last week at Jesus' baptism. God just declared at Jesus' baptism to the world. (laughs) world there's my son and i love him i delight in him and jesus walks away from that and satan goes right for jesus identity he goes is are you really god's son Let me ask you this question. Where do you find your identity today? Or let me ask it from this angle, from the angle of, of, of where we are in the story. Do you know these words, these words that God as Father speaks to us as sons, that world, this is my son. I love him. I delight in him. You know those words? Do they burn in your soul? Because see, these are the very words that 
that, that our hearts crave. We, 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 we crave to hear our creator say that about us. The, the one who, who knows us to the bottom and loves us to the skies. That we have a father right now who delights in us, loves us. See, we've been made to know that love. We've been made to know the love of the Father. This is why our relationships with our human fathers are, are so important. Because human fathers are, are the manifestation of, of a deep spiritual need that we all have. Our hearts crave for our Father's love and approval. I still crave it for my dad. He still can melt my heart. When he says, Rod, that was awesome. Rod, that was just amazing. He can crush me. God made us for himself. And our hearts will be restless until they rest in the arms of our father. And see, this is where Satan oftentimes attack. If you are God's son. See, he's attacking Jesus' identity. Why is he attacking Jesus' identity? For the simple reason that we live out what we know ourselves to be. So if you know yourself to be poor, you will live like you're poor. If you know yourself to be rich, like, like Queen Grandma in, 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 the, in, in that video, you will live out that richness. If you think your little brother... I was at Michigan State yesterday at the football game. You knew it was going to come up, right? And honestly, I was sitting in the second row on the 45-yard line right behind the Michigan bench, okay? So I got to take this thing in at levels that none of you got to see. And I did text my brother because I'm a little brother. I'm a little brother. It's part of my identity. And I just said, Kurt, what a joy it is to be in a sea of little brothers all around me. Okay, enough is enough. However, you know, little brothers know that if they have a big brother. Who are you? Do you know who you are? What are you doing here? See, this is why the Bible calls Satan the accuser, because the accuser, Satan, he's going to attack us at the point of our identity. So many times he's in my ear, not saying you did this, this, and this, but it's you are this, or you aren't this, or you suck, or you don't measure up, you're a failure. He goes right for a person's identity, and look at Jesus. Every time Jesus responds with scripture, it is written, it is written, it is written. Because he's combating Satan with a greater power, the power of God's word. Jesus knows God's word. His life has been saturated in God's word. And see, the power of scripture is not just that when the enemy comes, I take out this magic book and hold it up and say, be gone. But it's that, hopefully, I know this book, and this book is, is in my heart, and it's in my soul, and it, and. and it's in my identity. Because what the scripture does is it doesn't just tell us what to do. 
Therefore, when Satan says do that, we say, no, Scripture tells us to do this. Scripture first tells us, before it tells us what to do, who we are. So who are you? What are you doing here? See, these questions are so important because how you answer those questions will tell me who you're listening to. Which is why we need to saturate ourselves in God's word. Jesus saturated his life in God's word, which is why he can say in the moment, it is written, Satan, it is written, Satan, it is written, Satan. And here's the deal, if we don't let God tell us who we are, someone else will. Whether it be our culture, whether it be our parents, whether it be a coach, whether it be our teachers, our friends. And I'll tell you, the worst case in all of this will be Satan himself. And if that's all you listen to, at best, you're going to come away feeling like you can't measure up. At worst, you're going to be deeply shamed. Now, this is an oversimplification, but this is what God's word, it, it, it generally tells me. It tells me two things about myself. Number one, it tells me that I am more sinful than I could ever imagine myself to be. It's real. It's an honest book. And it causes me to be honest with me. That I've been so sinful that the God of the universe had to come down. And die. That's how bad I am. But I'm so loved. I'm so glad to do it. I'm more loved than I could ever dream myself to be loved. And see, what, what this combination produces is... A a, a humility and a confidence all rolled up in one. Because on one hand, I can't think of myself as better than anyone. I don't care if you're a rapist or ISIS or anything. I'm that bad. But yet in my most insecure moments, it just exalts me. I'm that loved. That's why I need to preach this self to myself every day. I need to hear God say every single day, world, that's my son. And I love him. I delight in him. And see, what what, what God's word does even more than that is it, it roots my identity in the most amazing of families. I mean, a family that goes all the way back to Abraham. And I can read this book and know that these stories are my stories. And that these people are my people. And that God has been doing the most amazing thing throughout time and space through this most amazing people. It's my family. Just spent a week in Turkey learning about the early church and seeing what brothers and sisters did in the face of an emperor and an empire that said, Caesar is Lord. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. And to see a church say, no, Jesus is Lord. He's King of Kings. And sometimes at the cost of their lives. We're a part of that. 
And not only are we a part of, of this family, we're a part of that family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who right now are unleashing all the resources of heaven for us. Not a hair can fall from our head without our Heavenly Father knowing about it. The Son came to the world to die for us, to give his life up for us, so his righteousness could be our righteousness. Right now we have a Holy Spirit in us who fills us, who encourages us, who reminds us and assures us that we're part of God. Who are you? What are you doing here? Take the book in and live the book out. We have to. There's so much at stake. There's a war, there's a battle being raged. Do you know this morning what's at stake? Satan does. Satan knows exactly why, what's at stake. That's why he encounters Jesus when he's most weak. You know what's at stake? Everything. Adam's sin was a catastrophe. It was catastrophic for the whole human race because sin, again, is more than just breaking a rule. It's giving a piece of the kingdom of God back to Satan. And over and over again, when we read the story, Satan wins. And see, the Bible teaches us that sin, it's, it, it's more than breaking a rule. It's a disease. I mean, think Ebola. It has a virus quality to it. It is deadly. It's organic. Which means that our head Adam, the father of the whole human race, when he got infected, the entire human race became infected because we are all organically connected to Adam. And the fact that people are more afraid today of Ebola rather than the disease of sin tells me we don't have a clue about sin anymore. Because if you want to know what's really wrong with our world and what's really wrong with the human race, it's sin. And see, what sin did is it it created this disastrous new normal, which is proven by the very fact that when we see humans today and we see our world, we just think it's normal, normal. Are you kidding? I'll quote Greg Dempster right now. Sin has ripped us off. It's robbed us of this joyous, abundant way of life. If you're anxious right now, if you're guilt-ridden, if you're afraid, if you're angry, sad, if your life is broken, if you're self-centered, if you're arrogant right now, the reason for this is sin. I mean, I love the angle that C.S. Lewis puts on this. He said, if we could see Adam and Eve in their original state before they were diseased with sin, he said, all of us would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Because they were so stunningly godlike. 
We've fallen so far. Yeah, that's the bad news. You want the good news? <laughs> the good news is that the God of the universe is so passionate for the world he made. He's so passionate for you. He's so passionate for us. He's he's so passionate that he was able to come down and enter our chaos and enter our flesh. But I'll tell you why. The Adamic existence, Adamic, or our damned existence is probably a better way of putting it, Needs more than forgiveness. We need to be healed. Something needs to be done with the disease of sin. We need a new head who we can organically be connected to. We need a son of Adam who can do what Adam couldn't do and what Israel couldn't do and what we could never do. We need someone to hammer out a new way to be human, a new humanity. Someone who's going to enter Adam's shoes, Adam's flesh, and refuse to be like Adam, refuse to fail like Israel, who can perfectly live Shema. And why do we need this? We need this so that if we would choose, so choose to place our entire life in him and be rooted our whole self in him, we would be organically healed and made new so that the only words that could describe that are the words born again. This is what Jesus came to the world to do. Jesus didn't come to just forgive us. He came to remake us. And see, this is what is at stake in this this text. Does God finally have a righteous one, a righteous human, a righteous Israel, a new Adam, one who could be what Adam was supposed to be, what Israel was supposed to be, what we're supposed to be? And someone who can stand toe-to-toe with Satan and win. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Over 40 days, Goliath comes out to, to taunt and test God's people. In fact, the author is very careful to describe Goliath in a snake-like kind of way. He had armor-like scales, and the number attributed to him is six and six, and six. And if you know the story, this, this whole confrontation is about the one. Goliath says, give me a man. And if your man wins, we'll be subject to him. If our man Goliath wins, we'll be subject to him. And this describes exactly what happened in Eden. The snake won, Adam lost, and the whole world is subject to the snake. But here comes Goliath. Like the snake. And Israel doesn't have a man who can step up to the snake until the Lord's anointed. David shows up, just a boy, but the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And he says, the battle is the Lord's. David goes down into the valley that day and does what the Lord's anointed is supposed to do. He crushes the head of the serpent Goliath. And the Philistines that day got a new head. They got a new king. 
And all of this foreshadows a greater showdown where the whole world is at stake. A greater son of David, son of Adam, son of God versus the Satan. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is that we have a champion. A champion who left heaven, who entered our chaos, who entered the battle, who confronted the enemy. Because God in Christ, God in the gospels, in Christ, means war. Christ came for war. Christ came to make war. And don't think that it's just this one encounter in Luke chapter 4. It's a life of 33 years of fire and trial and temptation with cries and groans and tears where step by step, moment by moment, blow by blow, he refused. He refused. And he won. It all culminated in in, in the agony of Gethsemane where where it's the second temptation all over again. And what does Satan say in the second temptation? Jesus, here are all the kingdoms of the world. Don't go to the cross. In Gethsemane, this is exactly what Jesus is agonizing over. Father, can, can your kingdom come on a cross? I'm going to tell you something. This idea is not only tempting. It's satanic. A kingdom without a cross. Because no cross would mean our complete ruin to death and damnation. But Jesus refused to give in to Satan. And he submits. He says, not my will. Your will be done. And he goes to the cross. And don't see the cross as defeat. The cross is the victory of God. Because this is how the God of the universe is going to war against everything that plagues us. And how he's going to defeat it all. Jesus wins. By not only living the life that you and I were supposed to live. But by dying the death that we deserve to die. <laughs> That's the gospel. And right now, a battle is raging. We know the battle. We live in the battle. We feel the battle. I don't have to go into the details about the battle. But it's raging. And I want to declare what David said. The battle is the Lord's. It's not our battle. It's his battle. It's a battle that he has fought and that he wins. With his cry of victory saying, it is finished. It is finished. I, I did it. And the only reason we win is because we have a champion today who won. And when you and I see our champion, who he is, what he did, how he did it. How can we not love him with our whole heart? You know what we need to do? In light of the battle, one thing, one thing. 
It's Psalm 25. It was, it was my favorite psalm in, in, in college. David starts off and he says, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Soul is the Hebrew word nefesh. Nefesh means life. I just picture David. I picture him in the midst of it saying, God, unto you, unto you I lift up my life. I lift up my burdens. I lift up my struggles. I lift up my hopes, my dreams. I lift it up to you. I place it all in you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The author, perfecter, the champion of our faith. I don't know specifically what you need to lift up today. Lift it up. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Let's pray. God, we just live our lives in this micro little wor- world with a micro lens on ourselves, sometimes failing to see the awesome cosmic, cosmic thing that you're doing. And so rather, God, than just Here are the three things to fight the enemy, God. I pray today that you would cast our eyes on you. That we'd fix our eyes on you. That we would see our champion, our king, who did it. You did it, Jesus. You won. And I just pray that there would be the faith and the trust today that would cause all of us to place all of it, all of it, in you. Organically in you organically experiencing your life.